Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kerwin. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. Last week, I introduced you to Dr. Claire St. Peter. Claire is a professor of psychology and the director of graduate training and the coordinator of the behavioral analysis program area at the West Virginia University. Her research focuses on improving outcomes for children who struggle in school, identifying generative effects of extinction, determining how well reinforcement-based teaching procedures work in application by novice implementers, and teaching others to use behavioral approaches. When I go through her list of research interests, it would be very easy to substitute in horses for children. In part one of our conversation, Claire introduced us to the concept of super resurgence. I stopped us last time at that point because I wanted to give people time to absorb all the gems in that conversation. We started with mastery-based learning and then just wove our way to this uh, concept of super resurgence that I think really needs to give us pause, you know, to think about, to stop and think about the consequences of that. And it really emphasized, again, the importance of being really systematic in our training. So that's where we stopped, and now we're going to pick up with the discussion of the ways in which you can get behavior to relapse. Yeah, so there's actually three ways that you get relapse, behavioral relapse, three big ways. Um, one is just from shifts from um, more reinforcement to less reinforcement, so extinction. That's one way that you get relapse. Um, another way is shifts in context, like we talked about. And then interestingly, a third way is that if you have a learner who hasn't been experiencing a lot of reinforcers and you drop an old reinforcer in, you get behavior associated with that reinforcer back. So here's something that I don't know if it would pan out in the horse literature but it, or in the horse world, but it's interesting to think about. Um, someone who has switched to clicker training and who has one of those moments where a horse is not where not where the perfect horse would be. Yes. <laughs> is being is being pushy is a little a little too enthusiastic to start that training session. And the the human experiences a little bit of extinction and reverts to an old training method um, or an old reinforcer. And once that old reinforcer comes back out, I wonder if you don't get relapse of the old behavior on the part of the horse, because it is just like we see, I think it may be, just like we see um, in the research when you have an old reinforcer that hasn't been there for a while and it comes back all of a sudden, you get all the behavior that was associated with that reinforcer. Do you have a, a, an example, even if it's a human example of that? Uh, yeah, so often in the in the animal labs, the way that this is done is that they teach a simple response with a positive reinforcer. Uh, and so it's usually a lever press, or if it's a pigeon, we um, the operant folks teach pigeons to peck on little 
discs or key discs. Mm -hmm. um, and then they will reinforce something else or not provide reinforcers for some period of time. And that may or may not be with a change in context. So they may move them to a new um, cage or might like change their housing, or they may just not have food available for a little while for that response. And then once that response goes away, so it extinguishes the animal starts doing something else, uh, then they will drop that old reinforcer back in. So they'll drop like the, all of a sudden for no good reason at all, the food hopper will operate and food will be there that used to reinforce the old disc pack or lever press. And what you okay. see is that the disc pack or the lever press comes back with a vengeance. For a little while, all of these phenomena are what we call transient, right? If they don't hit another reinforcer, they'll go away again. <laughs> of course, whether or right. not they get reinforced is a whole nother story. Um, and so it is that the presence of the reinforcer serves as a cue for all of the responses that were associated with the reinforcer before, okay. it seems. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So the just because clicks. Yeah. Well, I clicked him because I hadn't clicked him for a while and I thought I should. Mm -hmm. So how does that fit into all of that? So I think that's a really interesting. First, let me be clear. I am speculating about all of this. I, as a researcher, I feel like I should be upfront to say I do not have a research study where I have done a just because click and seen. Um, however, based on what we know about the principles and what we know from other research that's been done, I think if I dropped a just because click with my horse who has a really, really good pose that has been reinforced a lot with clicks, if I out of nowhere dropped a just because click, I would probably get a whole lot of posing. Mm -hmm. um, now. Because the, the reinforcer, we have to remember that it's not a line, it's like a loop and the reinforcer actually becomes, like you just said, the cue for the next cycle. Mm -hmm. to begin. Yeah. So what I think this might do is accidentally reinforce just because clicks. Right. So for me, uh, like I toss in a just because reinforce the just because clicks on the for the trainer. Right. right like, right. Because all of a sudden, like I just click out of nowhere and now my horse is posing beautifully. And so it, it might jumpstart it. And that is great if, if what my horse associates clicks with is a beautiful pose, which my horse does. It may not be great if I hadn't spent the time to build that good history and my horse goes, oh, now there's food evolved in the picture because you just did a just because click. And now I'm going to get really pushy. I'm going to get really muggy because that's what's happened to me historically. That's what I've done historically when there's food around. And so it gets back to what we were talking about a moment ago about the individual's histories, right? My, right. my particular horse had not been exposed to clicker training until I got him clicks for him. And I was fortunate to be able to build this really good foundation with him. Um, so for him, I think it would be fine. And if anything, it would be perilous for me because I would go look at these beautiful poses. But I think I have another horse who's a crossover horse who was abandoned for, for many years and who was taking care of his herd. And if I did a just because click for him with food, I think I would get ears pinned pushiness 
because that's what that is for him. Like food is something that you resource guard and that you take care of because you don't know where the next meal is going to come from. So, so um, with early learners and particularly if it's an early learner horse paired with an early learner handler, then this, this could be very perilous territory. But if you have very perilous, very perilous that those just, because I always shudder when somebody says, well, I just, you know, I'll say, they'll be training and I'll look at this. Why, why did they just click right then? And I'll ask, why did you just click? Well, just because I hadn't, yeah, it had been a while since I'd clicked. And it's like, okay, <laughs> well, let's, we need to have a discussion about loops and, you know, Yes. Yeah, and that always makes me think of when Jesus says the purpose of training is clarity. Yeah. Yeah. But on the other hand, with a fairly well-established learner who is on the way to having a, a good default behavior, such as the pose, then it's a way of, in a way, it's a way of strengthening the usefulness of that default behavior. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so I think it's important, you know, we, we tend to talk about relapse. Relapse is a very charged word. Um, we tend to talk about relapse like it is uniformly always a really bad thing. Um, resurgence, we tend to talk about like it's a bad thing, like this is something we don't want to happen. Um, one of my former doctoral students, Catherine Williams, who is actually one of the people who's coaching Lucy um, now, she did her master's thesis on positive forms of relapse. So what she did is she taught learners um, a way to solve quadratic equations, because um, this is the kind of person that Catherine is, where she comes to me with an idea and is like, it's going to involve teaching solutions to quadratic equations. And I went like, great, I will brush up on <laughs> solutions to quadratic equations. Yeah. Um, so she taught learners one way to solve quadratic equations. And then she taught them. Can I ask what that is? Oh, God, please don't. don't. No, okay. Once upon a time, I could solve quadratic, quadratic equations. But if you don't know, you don't want to know. And just, it's not necessary. Let's just call it that. Yeah, skill. I don't know. Okay. It's not necessary for the purpose of this she taught them one complex maths and then she taught them a different okay. complex maths um so she taught them a second way to solve okay. these problems we could talk about them as problems generally although these were definitely complex math problems okay. um, and then she gave them problems so the interesting thing about quadratic equations is that they can't all be solved by the same method um, <laughs> but they all look really similar um, regardless of of what method you can use to solve them so in her third phase, she gave them problems that couldn't be solved by either of the first two methods. So we essentially, um, you know, the things we do for the sake of research, we essentially threw these poor learners like straight into extinction, right? Yeah. Like the things that you have tried before are now not going to work. And we measured what they did. And so what Catherine was really interested in was, would they persist with the method that they had learned most recently? Would they go back? and relapse to um, the method that they had learned first, or would they try something totally new? Um, and so what, what do you think they did? Um, 
I would think off the top of my head that they would try the most recently reinforced, so the one that they had just that had just been successful, and then they would relapse back to the first method that they had. But when both failed, then they would throw something at the teacher. <laughs> it's like you've been working with contingencies and learners for a really long time. Um, so that is, in fact, what a lot of them did. So uh, a lot of them, but not all of them, uh, tried the most recent method first and then relapsed back to an old method. And Catherine's argument in that paper that she wrote describing her findings was that this is what we want people to do. You know, we want them if if you have two good solutions to a problem that have worked for you before, when the first one doesn't work, try the second one right. um, before you just start like randomly throwing spaghetti at the wall and coming up with, with new novel things to try. And so when there are cases where relapse is valuable, this is part of the reason why I reinforce the pose so much. And, and hopefully this isn't, you won't correct me on this, but please do if you think it's wrong, um, is that if I accidentally toss my horse into an extinction context, which I wouldn't do on purpose, but you know, life happens. Life happens. Um, what I want him to relapse to is the pose. Yes. Right. Like, and I want all of a sudden I'm asking for something and he's standing still and he is, you know, got himself in this beautiful posture. And I want to use that and have that as my cue for like, oops, okay. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm asking with this target or with this mat or with this other cue is not clear because you are posing right now. And that is relapse. That is suggesting to me that it's extinction. It gives me something very particular to look for when I get that relapse. Um, and so, and it's not a bad thing, right? It's not, no. I'm not upset that he is relapsing. It's part of our communication of, um, you have gone too fast. This is um, something that I don't understand. Head lowering serves, right. So it, this, is, this is in part why I chose the six behaviors that I did as the foundation behaviors, because we're going to have times when we confuse our learners. It just, it, we just are. And, and so when my horse is confused or frustrated or, you know, for whatever reason that he's going to relapse back to previously learned behaviors. And so I want those behaviors to be uh, things which are safe. And what I've learned, what I've observed is the very first thing that you teach with the clicker training get thrown at you when the horse is confused. And so if the first thing that you taught was turn around and target your hindquarters <laughs> to my hand, which I have actually seen, or uh, say yes, <laughs> or some other behavior, those can become nuisance behaviors really, really fast. But if you're confused and you drop your head, that is great information for me and it's safe so mm -hmm. if my horse is confused and he backs up a couple of steps out of my space I'm a lot happier than if he crowds into me so backing mm -hmm. is a great foundation behavior to have if my horse is confused and he puts his head down um, instead of rearing up that's a win as far as I'm concerned 
And that headlong read is absolutely, absolutely, we read it as, oh, okay, he, he's, he's asking for clarification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this is another reason to teach a lot of skills too. Yeah. Once you start clicker training, so if you're clicker training a crossover horse. Uh, so another one of my graduate students, um, Claudia Diaz-Salvat, did a study where we looked at um, the likelihood of getting relapse of unwanted behavior. She looked at two different conditions. Uh, so she looked at a condition where we only taught a few new responses. And then she looked at a condition where we taught lots of new responses. So um, we essentially compared uh, teaching one new skill and teaching six new skills. And then how likely were we to get relapse to an unwanted behavior that hadn't been reinforced since before we started teaching? So you could think about this, like I have a crossover horse who has this history of certain behavior and or maybe is engaging in some behavior that we wouldn't want to see again. And we start by teaching new skills and how many, how does how many new skills we teach impact how likely we are to get that unwanted behavior back if we accidentally hit that confusion or extinction point. Um, And what Claudia found was that the more new responses we taught, the less likely we were to get unwanted behavior back, even if the same amount of teaching occurred across them. Now we were teaching really simple responses. And so our learners mastered all of those responses. Um, And so that's an important thing to think about when we think about amount of time spent teaching, because of course, amount of time and mastery, not always the same um, as we know from the very beginning of our conversation. But if we can teach learners lots of responses where they get it and they, they get those clean loops, Often what will happen is they'll, when they hit extinction, they'll go to one that has either the most recent history of being reinforced. So the the current hot behavior, or like they'll kind of regress their way back through. And so it's really handy to go, oh, you just lowered your head and then backed up and then stood on a mat and then did a pose. Like something is going really wrong and I should have a cup of tea Um, (laughs) because you, you know, you start to see I'm asking and this ask didn't work. Let me ask a different way. And that ask didn't work. Let me ask this way. And that ask didn't work. Let me ask this way. And you can get all of those before you get, I'm going to pin my ears and lunge at you and rear um, or do something else that would be an unsafe behavior, which is really nice to know as trainers. Right. And, and again, really important because I've known people who feel as though, you know, I have to perfect this skill before I can add other skills in. So they'll spend a lot of time working on targeting to get targeting really perfected, but they're not then teaching the backing and the head lowering and the grownups are talking and they don't have a cluster. They have a really good, strong targeting skill, but that's a very limited repertoire. So interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, that that, that might be something that, that novice clicker trainers were prone to do. Like I, I am comfortable doing targeting, so I am going to hang on targeting for a while and wait till my horse gets really good at it, and then together we're going to explore something else. And that may not be actually an ideal strategy right. for everybody. Right. And in my experience, when I see it, it's not an ideal strategy. But I hadn't really appreciated 
the the why behind it. And you you will hear people say, but you know, don't I have to perfect this before I can teach something else? And first of all, nothing is ever perfected. What does perfected mean? And no, you you move a, a cohort of behaviors forward, but you're you're beginning to activate all these different behaviors, and they are simple behaviors. And they may involve targeting, because you might teach head lowering initially by having the horse follow a target down, but you're you are expanding the repertoire, definitely. Interesting. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting too to think about the context in which we train and the extent to which, you know, once we get a clean loop in one training context to try to get it elsewhere too. Uh, and so I'll I'll loop back to Catherine's evaluation of of complex maths for a second because I said many learners did what you said. Yes. And they started with the most recent, mm. the most recently taught skill and then went to the first taught skill before they tried something new. But not all learners did that. And Catherine is a great scientist. So Catherine looked at her data and she said, I want to know why some learners went in the way that you said and other learners didn't. And she. Um, and what did the other had, learners do? So the other learners went straight back to the first taught response. Okay. Um, so they did not. And had, had both responses been equally reinforced? Dominique, that's a great question. I don't know. They hadn't because she taught them until they could use the skill to solve the equations. And so because different learners okay. learned at different speeds, um, they didn't all have the same exposure, mm -hmm. but they all hit the same criterion before she moved on. But that should, my answer, my pause and my answer should tell you, interestingly, that's not the variable. That is a variable that can okay. impact outcomes. So there's other literature um, in the field that suggests that really long histories. So if, if you have, um, if you have a, a really short history for one behavior and a really long history for a second behavior, and then you hit extinction, that first behavior is less likely to come back than if it's than the opposite, right? Like we have a really long history for one behavior and a really short history for another. Right. Um, in Catherine's case though, she figured it out and it was brilliant. So she looked at the problems and noticed that the people who went straight back to that first taught strategy, their first problem that they got when they couldn't solve the problems in either way looked a little bit more, it had to do with where a multiplication value was, looked a little teeny tiny bit more like the first problems. And so we figured out, she figured out in, a, in her next study that it's all context cues, that when the context, when they hit extinction right. and the context also shifted just a wee little bit, they immediately went back to that first strategy. Interesting. So right, that's right. really interesting too, right? Like if we're thinking just about the behavior and not about the broader context where we're teaching, then sometimes behavior can come back, old behavior that we haven't seen in a while, be it behavior that we want or behavior that we don't want, right. can come back in ways that we don't necessarily expect. But there's something there in the environment that 
makes it come back in one way or another. Fascinating. Huh. Yeah. Lots, lots to chew on there. So I want to go into another rabbit hole. Okay. Since we've been talking about relapses, it's a topic, you know, Alex, I've been, I've been wanting to have the right behavior <laughs> analyst on the podcast to talk about this, this topic. Um, but since we're talking about relapse and I want to see no what pressure. Okay. about this. I want to, no pressure. I want to talk about giving learners, people, eventually animals, I guess, too, a second chance. So I'm going to give you an example, something that happened here in, in the province of Quebec recently that was a big, big thing in the media. So there's this young hockey player who was found guilty of sexual misconduct in Sweden. He's, he's a Canadian, uh, but he was playing for, a, I guess, semi-professional team in Sweden, had a girlfriend, and put photos of her naked on the internet. And he was found guilty and um, had to pay whatever fine there, I don't know. And this young player, hockey, he's a hockey player, was, it was time for, um, I don't know how you say it in English, le repêchage, you know, when the professional teams, they pick uh, young players to play in their in their teams. So no professional teams wanted to pick this player because this had happened. But the Canadian team decided to pick him. And it was a big scandal here because, you know, people were saying, how can our team pick this, this young man who committed this, uh, this sexual misconduct? You know, hockey players are, are um, like models for our young people. They're, they're paid high, high salaries. Um, it's a bad example. Um, we shouldn't, and it, it was, I mean, a lot of people lost their jobs because of this. It was a major scandal here, sports scandal. But of course, there were a few uh, voices that came up and said, well, you know, how long is this young man going to pay for this? Can we not give someone like this a second chance? And I've been kind of racking my brain about this, you know, thinking, so when can you, and when can you give a second chance? Of course, if you put yourself in the victim's shoes, you think, no, never, you know, for her, um, even, you know, on the internet, you can still find images that have been pulled out. I guess no one asked her uh, whether he should have a second chance or not. But I think it's an interesting question. You know, when someone makes, and, and people said, some people said, well, it was a youth mistake. He was 17 years old. Um, other people said, well, let's see what he does in the next few years. Is he really... Uh, re, re, yes. repentant is that a word in English yeah so anyway but the question basically for me is when someone makes a mistake something you know significant when can you give a second chance we're clicker trainers we're positive reinforcers but philosophically I don't know the answer to this yeah I it's a hard question it's a, it's oh gosh um 
you know, I was joking before when I said no pressure, but now I like really feel it. Um, I, I think that it, it, it's a hard question in part because it's an ethics question. Where do you draw the line? How do you know whether you should or shouldn't? And it's a complex question because, you know, the part of the question is about probably punishing someone for, for something bad they did. You know, like when we say prison or not a place where you really rehabilitate people, um, you know, usually we want to send people to prison because we want to punish them, not because we want to rehabilitate them. Yeah. And, and prisons are not very good places to, to rehabilitate. So there, there may be a revenge um, part to this question. We want the person to be punished. Part of it may be that we don't want this person to do this again to another victim. But um, but I'd love to hear a behavior analysis thoughts on this second chances. And, and what does it take? You know, can we really say that we have changed behavior? We can say that in this context, behavior has changed. So you have a dog that bites. Do you give the dog a second chance? How do you, how, can you change, can you change that behavior? And can you change that behavior across all contexts that that dog is likely to encounter? Or are you going to find yourself regretting the, your choice, whether it's the hockey player who now, as a successful and rich hockey player, is exhibiting behavior towards women that is unacceptable? Or is it behavior in the dog where he's, um, oh, oops, he just bit, bit your your neighbor who came to the house. It's all yours. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I think that it, it's a hard question, but yeah, it's all yours. So there's an ethics question and then there's a philosophy question and the philosophy question <laughs> is a little bit easier. So I'm going to tackle it first. Um, so the philosophy question is earlier, the philosophy side, I think is earlier, we talked about kind of contrasting mm. this blame perspective or a pathological approach that if you're getting unwanted behavior, it's because there's something wrong with the organism and it's, it's their fault and that you can dismiss that organism or that learner um, because they have some inherent default. It's easy to take that perspective when you're talking about emotionally charged issues. You know, when we're talking about people who are hurting other people it's easy to say there's a defect with that person that leads them to hurt somebody else and they should be dismissed or scorned or locked away. Um, and that's a very blame, blamey and retribution-y kind of perspective. And it doesn't sit, I think, with, it doesn't sit well philosophically with this idea of a more circumstances view that, that behavior is caused by, is, is that interaction between organism and environment, and that there are environmental circumstances. And if we knew the circumstances, we might treat the person differently. So I think the most notable, one of the best examples of that impact of like, if we knew the person's circumstances, we might treat them more differently comes from that paper by Pat Fryman, that no such thing as a bad boy paper that I mentioned a while ago. And in that paper, he describes the situation, and it's certainly not as um, kind of heinous as what you're talking about, Dominique, but I think there's maybe parallels there, where you're, you're in a rush and you're trying to get to work and you're running late 
and you're in your car, but it's okay. You're stopped at a stoplight, but there's only one car in front of you and you're pretty sure you can make it on time and everything is gonna be okay. And the light is red and the light turns green and the car doesn't move. And so you take a deep breath and you go like, oh buddy, you better move. And the light turns red. And you take that, you let that breath out and the light turns green and the car doesn't move. And you can just feel the retribution boiling. I have got to get to work. And you press your horn on your car and the light turns red. You go like, buddy, you better move. And the light turns green and the car doesn't move and you get out of your car and you stomp up to the window of that car and you're gonna tell that driver what's what. And when you look in the window of the car, you see that it's a young woman and she's bawling and staring into her back seat. And you look in the back seat and there's a baby in the back seat and the baby is blue. And the woman looks at you with tears running down her face and says, please, you have to help me. I don't have a phone. I need to call the hospital. My baby, my baby's not breathing. And in that moment, your view of this woman and how she has wrecked your day changes dramatically. And all of the rage and retribution goes away and you rush back to your car, not to spin around this woman and get yourself to where you're going, but to grab your cell phone so that you can call, so that you can call for help. And I think that examples like that, we can see ourselves in those examples. And I think that they help to give good metaphors for why these circumstances views are important perhaps and how they might change how we interact with each other in ways that are more humanistic and more compassionate than we might in other ways. You know, if we take this kind of blame or pathological perspective, um, but we have to have enough access to the people's circumstances to know that there are circumstantial variables that lead to behavior, even behavior that we find frustrating or annoying or hurtful. And sometimes those circumstances are really hard to see because sometimes those circumstances are in yes. our history. They're not a blue baby in the backseat right now. They're a blue baby in the backseat a year ago. Um, I'm working with a parent. I mentioned that I, I'm doing some parent training. Um, I'm working with a parent who um, whose child, whose child died. Um, and she's, she's working on trying to, to raise her elder child. Her younger child died. Um, she accidentally suffocated her younger child. And so she's dealing with all of these emotions about child raising and children. And they, they come out in the ways that she interacts with her current child. Um, and when you know the background, of what has happened to her and what's in her history. Maybe you view her parenting, her current parenting a little more, a little differently, right? You know, um, a little more compassionately. And I think we're living in a world where a little bit more compassion is maybe not a bad thing for all of us to have. Yep. So philosophically, I, 
I have to take the circumstances view road. And the circumstances view makes it difficult to uniformly write people off for bad behavior. That said, ethically, there's also, I think, risk assessments that we have to do um, in terms of, you know, how do we help manage risk for other individuals in our society? And sometimes I think that um, regardless of acknowledging that there are circumstances that lead people to behave as they do, that we still can't afford everyone all of the opportunities that might have otherwise been available to them because there are risks in doing so. You know, right. your dog that's bitten four people and has done so in four different contexts and without clear triggers, you have to think that maybe the opportunities for mm -hmm. that dog are a little bit more limited than a dog who doesn't have that history. Not because it's the fault of the dog, um, but because there are risks that are harder to anticipate and harder to mitigate. And so then when you think about, you know, how do we do that, then we also have to think about what the function of those environmental changes are. So are we applying some consequence because we're hoping it's going to change behavior? And if so, we need to be doing that in a way that comports with what we know about behavior change. Or are we doing something as a risk management tool? Um, in which case it might look a little bit different. It might, it might, might not change behavior the way that we would want behavior to change, but it effectively mitigates the risk. So it's a complex answer, but in my defense, it was a complex question. Yes. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was. You know, there's there's um it's a good answer. Yeah, it was. But it, they're hard questions. I mean, philosophical and ethics questions are not easy questions. So I, I love to hear that perspective that, that you just shared with us. So we'll, let's loop back. We'll, we'll loop back to loopy training. So I will loop back to uh, a year ago, January, at the Clicker Expo when you were watching my presentation where I was all bundled up because it was like zero degrees out. Oh. And I think there were some surprises in the work or things that drew your attention. So can you speak to those a little bit in terms of what drew your interest in uh, the approach that I take to positive reinforcement. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that one of the things, um, well, I'll answer that question, then I'll answer a question that you didn't ask. Okay. So the answer to that question, um, in terms of like at Clicker Expo, what did I see, is that, um, and I, I do not at all mean to throw any shade on other Clicker trainers, um, but I think one of the things that happens let me start again, again. I'm a scientist. I am a behavior analytic scientist. So my job is to produce science about how behavior works and is affected by its antecedents and consequences and to train the next generation of scholars who do that work. And because of my own history, it ires me yeah. when people say, Clicker training is based on science. So I'm going to tell you X because the science says it's so. 
there's a couple of things about that that ire me. One is that I can find no specific study that necessarily supports that particular claim. And the other is the science is just an odd turn of phrase for me because like what science is the science that says it is so? Um, and if I asked questions as politely as possible about those, you know, sometimes I got replies like, you know, reinforcement works, you should look it up, um, which is great. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think at Clicker Expo, the thing that struck me was that the way that Loopy Training deploys the techniques actually aligns with what we know about science and and what we know about extinction and other behavioral processes. And when you use specific words, you use them in ways that I was like, yes, that is how extinction works, right? Like that is what we know about extinction and cues and stimulus control. Um, and so that led me, my exposure at Clicker Expo led me to sign up for a clinic with you. I don't remember if it was a clinic or science camp that happened first. It turns out that science camp is transformational for everybody. Um, yeah, I don't remember. I think it was a clinic first. It might have been a clinic first. Uh, so, and then at the clinic, I learned about loopy training. So this was a term that I had never heard of before. Uh, and you showed the like loopy training diagram. And I thought to myself, ah, here is a missing piece. So my, I mentioned I'm a, I'm a full-time scholar and researcher, but I'm really interested in best practices in education. So a lot of my research is working with with children. And in thinking about loopy training, I was like, there's a whole side of this loop that we are not thinking about or talking about enough, which is how we're arranging reinforcers in those environments. And are we really doing things that put our learners in good contact with the reinforcers? And if we don't know their histories, such that we know that they're going to be able to effectively access this reinforcer that we're nominally giving to them, are we teaching that? And the answer generally was no, we're, not, we're doing a terrible job at that. And so I think that was a really interesting kind of eye-opening piece for me about how the clicker trainer side of the world um, has gotten more sophisticated in some of this than the behavior analyst scientist side of the world, which is neat because that's how science should work. We should take things that we see in the world and then make sure that when you have the kind of controls that we can establish in a laboratory and in scientific research that they still work and we can kind of quantify them and nudge the needle and figure out when and how they work best. So that was really fascinating to me. Um, and then I think the other thing that, that sat really nicely with me is the extent to which this particular community has um, embraced the idea of, of constructional approaches. And, you know, that that's an old um, behavior analytic perspective from Israel Gold Diamond's work in the 1960s, um, but that a lot of people don't know about in modern behavior analysis, which I think is really interesting. And honestly, that I hadn't thought about, I had been exposed to Gold Diamond's work 
as a graduate student, but hadn't thought about, hadn't reread a lot of that work. Uh, and so I was like, oh yeah, I need to go back and relook at and rethink about some of this and see how it fits into modern practice. So that's what sparked it for me. And then, as you know, many a rabbit hole has happened since then. Many rabbit holes. That's right. So what was the question that I didn't ask? Mm. The second part. Uh, okay. So you asked about Clicker Expo, right. but I think the loopy training piece, Clicker Expo was just the lure. Right. It got me right. in. It got me into, into investigating this a little bit more yeah. deeply. And then it wasn't until the clinics that I was in, in science camp. Um, and then my first science camp, um, at my first science camp, um, Jesus showed some operant data and made these, so data from like my research side of my life, and then like made these really clear connections to animal training side of things. And I went, oh, this is cool. <laughs> like, you know, you, you like it when, when you know pieces in kind of divergent yes. areas of your life and then they like merge into one thing. Yeah. So it's been a neat experience. Yeah. That bringing together the, the, the behavior analysts with the applied trainers has just been such a fruitful collaboration. Uh, we, we definitely learn from each other and we are better trainers because we have had these conversations with, uh, with all of you and, you know, think, thinking about why, when behaviors relapse and why and under what conditions and whether that's a good thing, a bad thing, I'm, you know, that's going to be something that I'm going to chew on a bit and, you know, who knows, it's all, it's all good. Well, we're better behavior analysts for it too. You know, I think that being able to, to see okay, this is happening. What do I have, you know, what do I have in my toolkit to explain this? Or, or this is a process that looks like this other thing that I've been researching. And, and is it really, is it really the same? Um, I think that, you know, following some of our conversations, I have like this giant list of ideas of things that we don't have enough data about to say definitively, is this which one of these practices is going to result in better, faster learning? Or, you know, how do we take what we know um, from the science and, and does this port straight out into what an animal trainer needs to know? Or do we need to take another a look at it? A lot of the assumptions, I think, you know, you get, you get so used to working in your own domain that you start to make assumptions and then you forget what assumptions you're making. Yes. Um, and so we we had this conversation. Um, I was on Zoom with you, um, Alex. I don't know. This is probably a couple of months ago, and I was talking about uh, intermittent reinforcement schedules. So not delivering yeah. a reinforcer. You know, like you deliver a reinforcer every fifth time or every eighth time, or for the first response after a minute passes or whatever it is. And you were like, "But that leads to all kinds of problem behavior." And I was like, "Well, yeah, pausing." And then I went, wait, but there's this whole other literature on pausing as problem behavior and why we wouldn't want animals to pause and how we would get rid of pausing. Um, and that pausing is can be hugely maladaptive and the organism is the learners doing something else while they're not doing what you want them to do. And what does that mean? 
Um, and so that's taken me down some fun um, other areas to explore in the research side. So I like, you know, I, I like that these relationships end up being so wonderfully right. mutual and, and mutually beneficial. Good for everybody. Yes. Relapsing behaviors, quadratic equations, philosophical answers contrasted with ethical ones, training and the constructional approach, variable reinforcement schedules, collaborations between trainers and researchers. We've certainly covered a lot of territory, and we're not done. Next week, we're going to be talking about superstitious behavior, how easy it is to create, how resistant it is to change, and what you can do to get your learner unstuck if he's become locked into an unwanted and superstitious pattern. That sounds like enough of a rabbit hole to go down, but we will also be talking about working with multiple learners and the use of different marker signals for each learner. And that's going to take us to a discussion of inconsistencies in training. What impact does that have on your learner? And in an interesting twist, how do you program for inconsistencies. So there's still a lot more to come. So stay safe and have fun with your horses. Mm -hmm.